Hi, I'm Josh Shearer and I serve as the lead pastor here at Gawley Uniting Church. I wanted to personally thank you for joining us today. We exist as a church to see lives transformed with the good news of Jesus. Now, I hope this service inspires you. I hope it blesses you. I hope it builds your faith and I hope it gives you perspective that God is moving in your life. If there is anything that we can do to help you, don't be afraid to reach out on social media or email our office. Thanks for joining us again and let's get to the service. Well, as we, as we jump into the Word today, why don't we pray together? Loving and gracious God, I thank you for your Word. I thank you for the way that it shapes our life, for the way that it speaks truth. And Lord, if we're honest, sometimes we're not that keen to hear what it has to say or even less keen to live out what it has to offer. But Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive what you had for us today. Still our hearts, center us. Open our hearts and our minds. Lord, would you give us the grace to receive whatever you have for us today. The wisdom to know what to do with it and the courage to live it out. And Lord, would the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, if you were with us last week, I talked about this. Does everyone remember this one? Our box of hopes, dreams, and desires. We all have one. How our box of hopes, dreams, and desires, and what shaped it, what was put into it, and how that came to be is different for each of us. But it's a universal truth. I don't know necessarily a lot about your story. Some of you, I don't know you at all. Some of you, I know you very well. But for each of you, something I do know about you is that you have one of these. We all do. And it can be filled with things from our family of origin. It can be filled with things that we've seen on TV. It can be filled with things that someone told us once were a good idea. And sometimes it's just filled with things that have just been there inside us since the very beginning. And we can't really do anything to get rid of this box. It's just going to be there. But we each have a box of hopes, dreams, and desires, and as it pertains to relationships, whether it's a, a marital relationship or a friendship or whatever it might be, we each bring a whole bunch of hopes, dreams, and desires into our relationship. And that's what I talked about last week in this series that we're going through called What Happy Couples Know. And now whilst it's, it does have its primary application in marriage or in relationships of a romantic nature, this can apply more broadly than that. You just need to be a little bit more creative. But I think, it, I think it applies to any place that we as human beings interact with one another. But most specifically, and this is perhaps what I'm going to drill down on a little bit today, is it most specifically applies to the relationship of 
marriage or permanent partnership. And so we've got this box of hopes and dreams and desires. And it might have in it how we plan, where we plan to travel when we get married. What sort of car we're going to drive. It might be how many kids we're going to have. Are we going to have two? Are we going to have four? Are we going to have six or eight? It might be who's going to do... You can sit on the floor. Who's doing the cooking in your household? Is it, is it the lady? Is it the, is it the man? Do you share it? More importantly, as I brought up last week, it's not who does the cooking, it's who does the cleaning up afterwards. Oh, I see that hand. Because, and I, yeah, I said last week the controversial view that I, it could be seen that the person that does the cooking that chooses to use every pot in the household may well consider it's their responsibility to clean them. Just saying, it's a consideration, but it's there for us. A hope, dream, or desire for the way our household's going to be constructed. And who and what sort of pets are we going to have in our life? One cat, two cats, five cats. One dog, two dogs. How big are those dogs going to be? Little dogs, big dogs. Are they going to live outside? Are they going to live on the bed? All of those things are hopes, dreams, and desires that either begin as part of our relationship or develop over time. But the tension that I wrestled with, that's not going back in there. Um, the tension that I, that, that I highlighted last week is that whilst we bring this box of hopes, dreams, and desires into a relationship and we feel like it's, they're good things, and they are good things, the challenge is that when we give that box to someone else, we enter into a relationship and we give our hopes, dreams, and desires to the other person and, say, and we say, can you fulfill these for me? This is my idea of an ideal person. I need you to fulfill these for me. The other person doesn't receive a box of hopes and dreams and desires, do they? No. What they receive is a box of expectations. That's what they receive. A box of expectations that says, this is how I expect you to fulfill my needs in life. And this, by the way, is the fallacy of the soulmate. Anyone ever heard of the, the idea of a soulmate? It's garbage. Just saying. It's not in the Bible anywhere. The idea of a soulmate is the idea of finding someone that fits you perfectly. Implication, it's all about me. And that's what happens when we have this box of hopes, needs, and desires, which ends up being shaped and becomes a box of expectations, is that we end up entering a relationship with it all about us. And as I also mentioned last week, when we're going to build on that this week, is that when we have one of these, and we expect someone else to fulfill it, what we're doing is we're creating a debt-debtor relationship. And I explained that this way, is that when you owe me money, you can't give me money. All you are doing is repaying the debt. So if you owe me $500, you can't give me $50. In fact, you can't even really buy me lunch. All you're doing is using my money that you owe me to buy me lunch. Do you see what I mean? And so when we, when we overlay that over a relationship, what we get is that when I feel like you owe me all of this stuff, you can't bless me because all you ever end up doing is repaying the debts that I have. And by the way, it's impossible. There is no conceivable way for 
you to, re, to, to repay all of these. There is no conceivable way to live out all of the expectations that your partner might have upon you, which means if all you ever do is drag around your hopes, dreams, and desires and expect someone else to fulfill them, it's a recipe for disaster in relationship because you will never find intimacy because intimacy comes from love, comes from time and transparency and openness, and that can't exist in a debtor relationship. So that's what I talked about last week, and I landed us with one final idea, and that is what do happy couples know? Happy couples know that they expect nothing from the other person. Simple as that. That we expect, if we, are, if we are to be a happy couple, we are to expect nothing from the other person. Expecting nothing. Which seems a little bit strange. But I want to I finish that idea, or finish that sentence with another idea to, that we're going to talk about with the rest of our time together. And that is whilst a happy couple expects nothing, they also give everything. Whilst a happy couple might expect nothing from the other person, they give everything that they have, that they are, to the other person. And that's what I want to spend the rest of our time exploring today. And do you remember last week, at the end of the sermon, I asked you two questions to ponder. You weren't meant to talk about this with anyone. So if you, if you did, bad. Because you might have found it caused some problems. It's because you haven't done this bit of the sermon yet. Okay, so the questions were, what is in my box? What's there? And that was one question for reflection. The second one was, who have I given it to? What is in my box and who have I given it to? So now having reflected on both of those things thoroughly, we are now ready to explore what it looks like for us to expect nothing but give everything. Because that is what happy couples know. And the reason that we're talking about this and the reason that I think it matters so much is the idea of expectations, the idea of you give a little bit, I give a little bit, we sort of compromise somewhere in the middle. For many people in our culture, the idea of compromise is the win for a, a, a relationship. True? Have you heard that? It's like, it's just about doing a little bit of what you want and they do a little bit of what they want and all that sort of stuff. And it doesn't work. Compromise doesn't work. And what you'll discover as we open Scripture today is that compromise is not and never has been the vision of a biblical relationship. Compromise, whilst culture says that's the only answer because you get, at least you get some of what you want, the Bible says, well, actually, compromise is not it. Compromise is not the goal. Compromise is not the win. There is a far better way. What is it, Josh? I'm glad you asked. What is the far better way? What is it that Scripture offers to us as a way forward to expect nothing but give everything? And Scripture offers one simple idea. Jesus teaches it and so does the Apostle Paul. He says, relationships, let's call it just marriage, because it's just easier. You, you guys know I'm talking broader than that, but I'm just going to say it because I don't want to keep saying it. 
Marriage is a submission competition. That's the idea. That's the principle. Happy couples know that marriage is a submission competition. It even rhymes. How cool is that? Marriage is a submission competition. And the basis for this idea comes out of a teaching of Jesus, which we know as, or I've come to know as the platinum rule. You know what the golden rule is? Do unto others as that you would have them do unto you, right? Everyone, we were taught that at school. That's just the basics of human ethics in many ways. Jesus, on the other hand, as he, when he was walking the earth and teaching us about what it looks like to exist in relationship with other people, he took the golden rule and he jacked it up to what I call the platinum rule. So you got the golden rule, what's worth more, more than gold? Platinum, so they say. I don't know about that, who knows. But the platinum rule, higher, shinier, it's bigger, more important. He said, you've got to do this one. John 13, verse 34. He says, a new command I give to you. And, and, and those that were listening to him would have gone, well, hang on a second, Jesus. We've got 600 and something commands that the Old Testament, like, that are a part of our scriptures. It wasn't the Old Testament for them, it was just the scriptures. And we said, we've got 600 and something commands, why do you need to give us another one? And he goes, well, I'm going to give you one anyway. But when Jesus says this, it's actually quite a scandalous thing. Because for the Jewish people that were in his audience, the only people that gave commands was God and kings. They're the only people that gave commands. It was God and kings, people that were ruling. And so for Jesus to say, okay, I'm going to give you a command. I'm going to give you a command. I'm going to take the place of a king, of a sovereign ruler, and I'm going to take the place of God to speak a command into your life of what it means to be my followers in the world. And so he says, a new command I give to you, love one another. Great. Thanks, Jesus. Is that it? He says, no, I'm not through. He says, this is how. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. As I have loved you. That gives us the qualifier. That gives us the bar in many ways, the example. Because how did Jesus love his disciples? Well, as he called them, he called the color washouts of Jewish, of Jewish Bible College. They were fishing on the, on the side of the river, and he says, what, hey, you two, let's, let's go. I'm going to teach you to fish for people. We're going to get around this and give people the real news of the gospel. Then he calls some other people. In fact, he says to, to Nathaniel, when, uh, when, his, when Nathaniel's brother comes to tell him to come and see Jesus, this guy's amazing, he's different to everything you've ever seen, I reckon he might be from God, and, and he's got authority, and he teaches, and it's amazing. And what's Nathaniel's response? Nazareth? Does anything good come from Nazareth? You can imagine Jesus turning to Nathaniel and saying, hey, you remember what you said about me and my whole family, the way you dissed my family and the way that you insulted our football team and everything, you said, what good can come from Nazareth? Yeah, I remember Jesus. You remember how I, even though you insulted me, I said, you follow me. I've got something significant for you to do. 
He says, as I have loved you. Oh, Matthew, do you remember Matthew, the tax collector? Do you remember when I called you? Matthew, what were you doing? I was betraying my nation. I was sold out to Rome. I was profiting off of my neighbors. He says, and what did I say to you? I said, follow me. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter what other people think of you. I want you to follow me. I've got something significant for you to do. As I have loved you, Jesus said to his disciples, so you must love one another. And so for you and me, we've got a whole different context for that. Because whilst it's true that whatever was going on for you when Jesus called you, that's significant. Because as I have loved you, as I have overlooked the broken, and while you were still sinning, while you were still broken, whilst you were still far from God, I loved you. That's significant. But what he did is the game changer. Because what did Jesus do for us? He laid down his life that we might find life to the fullest in his name. That's the gift of the gospel. That's the way Jesus loved us. So when we read that and he says, love one another as I have loved you, wow, what a, what a commandment, what a, a calling. And so I could just kind of leave it there, but I wanted to drill down and see what, what the Scriptures have to say about relationships specifically. And, and one of the cool things is that Jesus offers the command, and then most of the, what we read in the New Testament, the, the Scriptures from the Apostle Paul and, and all of that sort of stuff, is His attempts to with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to try and apply that command to specific situations, to apply that command of love one another as I have loved you to relationships, to Christian community, to those that aren't like you, to those whom you don't like, to the enemy, to the other. That's what most of the New Testament is actually about. And in Ephesians 5, we read a really significant passage of Scripture that talks about this. But it talks about this command as it pertains to marriage. And it's one of, in our culture, they would consider the most offensive passages of Scripture anywhere. Let's read it together and see if we can find another way to read this. And we're actually going to start with verse 22. Can we jump ahead one, M? Wives, submit yourselves, next, pass, next slide, to your husbands as to the Lord. Seems simple enough. Let's pray. No? You feel like I owe you something more than that. That one makes us feel a little bit funny, doesn't it? Wives, submit to your husbands. As to the Lord, just do it. It feels a bit awkward for us in our modern sensibilities because we think, well, why should, why should wives have to do that? But what I've got to tell you is this was not good, this was not news for the first century hearers. This was not news for those that were reading and hearing this letter from the Apostle Paul. He's a brilliant communicator because he begins at a, at a common place for his, his audience. For them, it wasn't, huh? For them, it was, of course. 
Wives, submit to your husbands. Okay, yes, of course, Paul. I thought you were going to tell us something important. I thought you were going to tell us something significant. Why? It's because in the first century, there was a, in the Greek, uh, there was a, um, a law, a rule, which is called patria protestos. Patria protestos. What that meant was man of the household was it in a bit. He was the one in charge. No questions asked. No appeals available. He was the one. Everything in his household belonged to him, including his wife. Owned. That was, that was how it was. Which means if, if she did something that he didn't like, burn the toast or, you know, whatever it might be, he could say, he could basically disown you three times and you are out, gone, out on your ear. See you later. And your name was Mud as a woman. That was the sort of authority that women had in the first century before the teachings of Jesus. And in some parts of the world, that is still the case, which is disappointing to say the least, to say the absolute least. But that is the, that is the worldview that Paul speaks this into. He says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And they go, yes, okay, we know that one. Okay, what else you got? But what's really interesting is that the word submit in this, in this statement, it says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. The word submit doesn't exist in this passage. And you go, Joshua, so why is it there? It says, and often a a, 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 ta- a a tool that they used in the ancient Greek, which is what this was written in, was that they borrowed a verb, a doing word, so in this case it's submit in the Greek, borrowed that verb from the, from the passage before it, from the statement previous. And the idea was that you inferred what that verb meant onto the thing that came after it. Does that make sense? No? Yes. Right, so we've got wives to your husbands as to the Lord. So what are we meant to do? Well, let's look at verse 21. Submit, there's our word, to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So we get this idea of submission, not from verse 22, as Paul talks about wives, because that's an assumed worldview. He says, instead, Submit to one another first out of reverence for Christ. Why would we do that? Well, Paul says, all I'm doing is I'm applying what Jesus said to you in the first place. Do you remember what it was? Love one another. How? As much as they deserve? No, that's not it. As I have loved you. Love one another. And the thing that really, really grates on us about this idea of wives submit to your husbands is that when we hear that, we and wives, be honest, ladies, be honest, when you read that, you think of all the men that are not worthy of, being, of submitting to, don't you? Because that's, because that's what grates against us, isn't it? Is we go, well, hang on a second, what about all the jerks out there? What about all the, the manipulative douchebags? I could choose a whole bunch more words than that. What about the abusers? What about the manipulators? What about, what about 
What about, what about, what about? That's what our heart does. When we read a passage like that, we go, well, what about? And I've got to tell you, I did a bit of a, a straw poll, I did a bit of a survey to figure out which husbands or which men in the world are worthy of submitting to. And do you know how many it is? Do you know what percentage? Zero. Zero. There isn't one of us that is worthy of submitting to. It's just not there. We're just not good enough. We just aren't worthy enough to be to, to submit to on our own merits. And but that's not that's not why we submit. That's not why we put others above ourselves. We don't put others above ourselves and submit and listen to others and and prioritize what they've got going on based on their worth. We prioritize them based on their value. And those two things might not seem the same. We will prioritize them not based on their worth, as in whether we think they're worthy or not. We prioritize them and we submit to them based on their value of how, what God said that they are worth. And what did God pay for you? What did Jesus give for you? Everything. Everything. His life. And so God says that your value is found not in what you do, not in your behavior which determines your worth. He says, no, no, your value is in what someone paid for you. And he gave his son Jesus Christ for you. And so ladies, when we see wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord, we submit not because they're worth it, not because of their behavior, not because they're doing the right things for you, not because they made the bed, not because they did the dishes, not because of any of that, but because Jesus died for them and called you to love them as he has loved you. So that's the ladies. Let's have a look at the men. Verse 20, it goes on to say, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. Keep going. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. That's what Paul's talking about. He says what he says. But then he goes over to husbands, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as, in the same way as Christ loved the church. Just as, in the same way, identical to mimic or literally mirror the way that Christ loved the church. And what did he do? He gave himself up for her to make her holy, to set her apart, to make her, as in the church, unique, unlike anything else, and blameless, without, sorry, I jumped ahead, making her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives. But how? How, how do we love them? Love them as their own 
bodies. And who doesn't take care of their own body? Who doesn't feed it when it gets hungry? Who doesn't exercise it to make sure it lives longer? Who doesn't eat the right stuff to make sure you don't get heart disease? Who doesn't get some sleep to make sure that you function well? Everybody does that. That's a logical thing. That's what we do. And so Paul says, okay, husbands, take care of, honor, submit to your wives in the same way as you would take care of your own body. Because by the way, it is your own body. Do you remember what Genesis taught? A wife. Oh no, he goes on to talk about it. He says, for this, he says, this is what I'm talking about. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, verse 30, and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. The two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. He says, but I'm talking about Christ and the church as well. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must honor and respect her husband. The two are one. When a a couple is married, Scripture teaches us that the two become one flesh. And practically, that's what happens. You spend time intimately together. And literally two become one flesh. And there's something, there's a mystery Paul talks about that happens in the midst of that. Where where God teaches us that we become one being. You give something of yourself to the other which cannot be taken back. It becomes something wonderful, knitted together. So he says, when you take care of your spouse, you're actually taking care of yourself because you are together. You are one flesh, one being. You are equal. You're equal. That's the implication. Because if, if, if man and woman are, are one flesh, it means that they're equal. I've got a question for you. Where else in all of philosophical thought, in all of time, is that idea exist? Men and women as equals. Nowhere. Nowhere. Not one place in any other religion, or philosophical idea, or tradition are men and women equated as equal. It doesn't exist anywhere. The first person to speak of justice and equality between men and women was Jesus of Nazareth. The first one to introduce this idea into the world. And so for many of you, it it could be if you're joining us online, maybe the challenge for you in all of this Christianity thing was, hang on a second, it's this whole men and women, and this could be this passage was the barrier for you. What I've got to tell you this morning, if you hear nothing else, is that the primary advocate for justice and for equality between men and women is Jesus of Nazareth. He was the first one to teach it, and everything else that we now assume is a part of our modern thought 
every bit of us that rails against the idea of a, a man submitting, of, of a wife submitting to a, to a husband, of a, of a woman submitting to a man, everything in us that hates that idea because it doesn't seem fair is constructed and built upon the teachings of Jesus Christ. And I don't know how the church got it wrong. I don't know how society got it wrong. How we landed ourselves back in a negative frame. But it seems pretty clear to me that what Jesus offers as the ideal is that they would be equal. And so what's the implication? What's the application? What do we do with this? Well, it seems pretty simple. And I told you at the beginning. Happy couples. Happy couples know that being a part of a relationship is a submission competition. It's actually not a race to the front of the line. It's a race to the back of the line. It's a race to see how I can serve the other person above and beyond myself. And the fun thing is, when you both do it, it takes 45 minutes to decide where you're going to where you're going to have dinner. We've all been there, haven't we? What do you want to have? I don't know. What do you want to eat? I'm not sure. What do you want to eat? I don't know. Where should we go? It's exhausting. So maybe that's a critique, I don't know, but But when we get this right, We submit to one another not because they're worthy of submission based on their behavior, based on the way they've treated us, based on whatever. We submit to them because of their worth as determined by the heavenly Father. And we trust and we hope and we believe that they will do the same for us because that is what Jesus taught them. But the tension for us, the challenge for us is that for you and I, As followers of Jesus, we have to go first. We have to go first. It's our job to have a crack and see what happens next. Now, I'm not talking about submitting to those that are abusive. I'm not talking about submitting to those with whom they have already damaged and already broken the covenant of marriage by not respecting you by not allowing you to be a human being. By, I'm not talking about abuse. That is, I, don't, I, need to be, I need to be so clear about that. That's not what this is. If your spouse has broken the covenant of marriage by choosing to abuse you physically, relationally, socially, financially, then you can walk away from that. God doesn't want you to stay there. There might be a journey back to that maybe, but I don't believe you're called to stay there, so you need to be super clear in hearing me on that. But what I want to present to you is the ideal of what Jesus offers as the way to do Christian relationships, the way to be his followers in a marriage, is for it to be a submission competition. Hayley, can I borrow you for a sec? Can you grab the other end of that rope? Thank you. 
pull it. I won't let it go quickly, I promise. This, as a relationship, doesn't work. If we, all we are ever doing is fighting with one another. No, I, I want to go where we want to go on a holiday. She wants to go where we want to buy that car. No, we need to have this many kids. No, we need to do, have that as a pet. It doesn't work. Because even if we compromise and somehow we land in the middle with some sort of medium-sized puppy, we're both still fighting for our rights. We're going to go on a seven-day cruise, not a 14-day one, just a compromise. For us to get this right, we have to drop the rope. Stop fighting. And recognize, thanks, you can go sit down. And recognize that God's vision for your marriage, God's vision for my marriage, and by the way, this does apply to other relationships too. God's vision for us is that we would just drop the rope. That we would submit to one another. Why? Out of reverence for Christ. Happy couples know this. But I've got to tell you that that's not easy, is it? Because I don't want to. Do you? I don't want to give in. I want to get my way. Don't you? Anyone notice that's an inbuilt part of humanity? We don't have to teach kids to be selfish. They just seem to know. They call that sin. So we want to get what we want. And so the only way that this is possible, the only thing that can make this possible is for us to recognize that our most important relationship in our marriage is our relationship with Jesus. From there comes everything else. We talked for a few weeks after Easter about the resurrected life, but the way that our life needs to look different based on the resurrection. I talked about the Holy Spirit and its power in us to love and to live. That's this in action. Happy couples know that it's a submission competition, but happy couples also know that we don't do it in our own strength. We can't. We don't have it in us. But instead, we do it through the strength of Jesus Christ and His Spirit within us to give us what we, do, what we need to do this on the days when we'd rather not. That's the gift. That's the calling, because Jesus didn't just ask us and say, good luck. He didn't just command us and say, better get a C plus or you're not going to heaven. He said, this is what it looks like, and here's someone to help you do it. So don't forget, happy couples know that, that marriage is a submission competition. That we expect nothing but we give everything. And by doing that, we just might discover the wonderful gift of marriage, the wonderful gift of friendships, the wonderful gift of relationships that God had in store for you all along. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you have to go first. And if you're not, you can choose whether you do this or not. 
You can choose whether you might find this helpful or not. But I believe that if you were to give this a try, you would be blown away by how much of a difference it can make in your relationships, in your marriage, in your life. So what do happy couples know? That it's a submission competition. And that's where I'm going to leave it for today. We're going to pick up next week as we explore a question which I know you've probably been asking. What do we do with this? What do we do with this? What do we do with this box? Because we've all got one and there's nothing we can do about it. But by way of a practical thing to finish our time together, I wasn't, gonna, I wasn't sure if I'd do this, but I will. I've got a, some questions that I want you to ask. That's actually just one question of your spouse, of your partner, of the person and the other, other person in the relationship, I need you to sit down with them at an appropriate time, not when they're tired and at the end of a work day, but find and make an appropriate time and ask them one question of your spouse. What is in your box? And then the second thing I need you to do is stop talking. Question, what is in your box within the framework of this? What's... What, what are your hopes? What are your dreams? What are your desires? Second, stop talking and listen. And you might get some pushback. What do you mean you don't know what's in my box? You don't know my hopes. We've been married for 45 years and you don't know what's... Be gracious, please, in this. Give it a crack. And for ladies, as you ask your husbands this question, most of you will get this in response. I don't know. And it's not that we're trying to be defensive or evasive. We don't know. We don't know what's in our box. We haven't really thought about it. What's, some, what's my hopes, dreams, and desires? Breakfast. And lunch, and then dinner. And at some point, I'll go to bed. We don't know what's in the box. So it might take a little bit of helping us work. To like, you know, what did you hope life would look like? Or, or you know, help us with it. Help, help us out. But ask that question, what's in your box, and then just listen, because it might be a conversation you have never had together as a couple, but it might be the next thing that will break open the gift of intimacy that God has for you, and we'll explore what we do with that next week. Let's pray together. Loving and gracious God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the way that it speaks to us, and what an interesting idea. What a challenge to expect nothing but to give everything, knowing that we have no idea how that's going to be received. But Lord, the challenge is that's what you did for us. You gave everything for us and expected nothing in return, for there's nothing we could possibly give to pay We just don't have enough. So Lord, I just pray that you would help us to get this right. Challenge us. Open our hearts. As I prayed at the beginning of this, give us the grace to receive this and the courage to live it out. For this is hard. It's hard to listen. It's hard to approach the idea that 
Maybe the person we've been doing life with for so many years has no idea what's in our heart. But Lord, may this be a first step to opening the way for conversation, for opening the way for intimacy that may not have been there for a while or may never have been because we never truly knew who was on the other side of the table. So Lord, be with us in these conversations this week. Help us to listen well. Help us to think deeply of what you've placed in our hearts, good things that we'd love to see become a reality in the world. And help us to hold those lightly with one another that we might discover the true joy, happiness, and contentment of a relationship you've got planned for us. In your name we pray. Amen.